from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Measured Thoughts on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, David Reepstein. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Measured Thoughts on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Dave Reepstein, a professor of marketing here at the Wharton School, and I'm joined in studio by my co-host and PhD candidate of marketing and business ethics, here at the Wharton School is Sunil Betty. Sunil, welcome. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, glad to be here. I've been away the last couple of weeks, so yeah, we've yep. been off the air or in replay mode mm-hmm. anyhow. But I've been not in play mode, but in work mode, but mm-hmm. been traveling around. Where, where, where were you? So I first was in Panama, okay, and which was very, very interesting. And then I went from Panama to uh, Dubai. Wow. It was like the difference between the two. It's got to be day and night. Well, first of all, I was in Panama. I was doing some work in Panama. I went to the canal. I saw the new expanded canal. Oh, I didn't realize they had expanded it. They expanded the canal. I was there right at the same time that uh, Prime Minister, uh, the head of China, Xi, was at the canal, which just added all sorts of chaos and everything. Oh, that's cool. No, it was very, very cool to be there for that. And then Sarah and I went up north in in Panama. We stayed at an echo lodge. And out the front was the beach and the ocean. Oh, that's nice. But, I mean, it was in the middle of wilderness. And then out out the back was jungle no mosquitoes nah, i don't believe it it was no, mos- it. no mosquitoes but we we had monkeys we had sloths we had all sorts of things uh, very cool dubai was just absolutely absolutely fascinating and i, I want to spend some time talking to you about my return trip so okay i i flew on emirates air okay uh, great airline a, a great great airline and i'm going to have to spend more time talking about that after we talk to our guests yes so we have two parts of our program today. And and the first part of our program, we're gonna be joined by two professors that are at the University of Minnesota. We have Paul Valor, who's an associate professor and chair in law and business, which ought to be very relevant for you, Sunil. Absolutely, for sure. And then joining him is his co-author on some of his work, which is Joel Waldfogel, who used to be a professor here and he's now there. He's the associate dean of the MBA program uh, there. And they're both at the University of, of Minnesota. We're going to be talking to them in the first half of the program. Second half of the program, we're going to open it up to anything anybody wants Great. to talk about related to marketing and some of Dubai. Mm, and so I'll exciting. talk some about Dubai and Expo 2020, which Ooh. I had some experience with. Okay. That I'll have to explain what that is. Please. So we're going to do that. We're on the air every Monday at 4 p.m. on Sirius XM Channel 132, and we are replayed throughout the week. This will be, again, replayed throughout the week. At any time, you can give us a call at 1-844-WARDEN. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can email us at businessradio at Sirius. Let me state that again. You can email us businessradio at SiriusXM.com, and you can follow us on Twitter on Biz, B-I-Z, Radio 132. But without further ado, let me turn to our two guests, uh, Paul Valor, Associate Professor and Chair in Law and Business. Paul, welcome. Thanks. Great to be here with you, David. And Joel Waldfogel, who's the Associate Dean of the MBA program. Both of them are at the University of Minnesota. Joel, welcome. Glad to be talking to you. Good to talk to you. It's sort of funny talking to you now that you're there rather than while you were here. <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it's a real delight to have both of you on the program. Um, actually, you know, I got a chance to meet Paul for the first time 
um, at this conference that was happening at, uh, at Temple University here in Philadelphia. And I was fascinated by some of the work that, uh, th that you were doing, Paul, with Joel. And, um, and, and Paul, maybe to start us off, it'd be nice if I heard some of your background before you came to the University of Minnesota. You mean when I was a real person, David? When you were, <laughs> well, we're going to have to redefine that because once we hear what it is you were doing, it'll be totally up for debate. So tell us what your background was, and I think it's going to relate to Sunil a lot. That's right. So before I got into academia, I was a practicing lawyer used to counsel companies that were engaged in international business and often had international business issues where the law differed with the U.S., environmental law. I went on to do a Ph.D. At, here at the University of Minnesota in the business school. So what do you do with a business degree and a law degree? In my case, it meant going off to a school of international affairs. So my first appointment in academia was out in Boston at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy sure. at Tufts University. So. Great. A lot of the issues that we talk about for business are really about political economy issues, how firms respond to policy reforms. And, of course, the 1990s and 2000s have been full of that, especially in emerging markets and especially in areas like airlines and transportation. So that's my background, and that's how I got interested in these issues. Joel's got a little different story. So, so I'm going to turn to Joel in just a second, but what part of that was being a real person? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to throw that in there. And by the way, um, I will mention, is you got your law degree at Harvard, so did Sunil. And Sunil is getting his doctorate right now in both business and law. So he's following very closely in your footsteps, and uh, we'll have to find out, you know, what the path to success Absolutely. is. Absolutely. So Sunil will be very interested in that. And Joel, what's your background? Well, uh, I studied economics in college and then got an economics Ph.D. My first uh, academic job was actually in, a, in an economics department at Yale University. And then after seven years of that, I went to Wharton, where I was for 13 years in something more like the real world, the world, the academic world of business <laughs> yeah. scholarship. Well, okay, that's the real world. I get that. Well, resembles it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And how is it you two started working together? Because you seem to come from different backgrounds. Well, you know, we're in the same department, and we're uh, Paul's a wonderful guy, and, and we're friends. I mean, actually, the, the origin story of this paper involved involves a, a bar and a, and a Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, <laughs> which so one was that? First, which, which one was that? Well, you know, it, it began with, I was out with uh, my wife and some, some family friends and talking about travel and, you know, as middle-aged people do, talking about the various features of different airlines. And someone was saying how much he liked traveling on Emirates. And I, I went home after that dinner and I was looking at Emirates' route map and noticed something a little odd about it, that some of the country names were missing. And I looked at a bunch of other airlines' route maps and noticed that the country names were missing. In particular, Israel's country name was missing off of a bunch of route maps. And I'll get back to the details of that. But shortly after that, I was out with Paul. Just Again, we're friends, seeing a, a Quentin Tarantino movie. And after that movie and the, all the bloodshed and so forth, we got to chatting about what I had been seeing online. And uh, as, as these things often happen, uh, a paper or a project ensued from that conversation. Uh, some of the best papers happen at uh, start at bars, anyhow, <laughs> and maybe, maybe even finish at bars right, at, right. as well. So um, I'm curious about this, that you noticed there was uh, Israel was not on the map, but physically you could see Israel on the map. It just wasn't uh, labeled. Is that right? 
That's right. So, on, I mean, where I started was uh, Emirates and, and Etihad, where uh, they use an underlying, at their online root map, it's an underlying Google map, it says Google on it, uh, and most countries are named as they are on the Google map, but some countries were not on those two airlines, including Israel was not. Then I looked just for fun uh, at a few other airlines, Saudi, uh, Kuwait, and a bunch of others, and in many cases, uh, what I saw was a little bit more stark. Again, I would see Google Maps that had the Google logo on them, had names of all countries, but in this case, all countries except one, Israel. And was Israel the only one that wasn't mentioned? The only one that was not on the regular Google Map was Israel on, uh, on a couple of airlines, on, including some members of these major airline alliances, Middle East Airways, which is in uh, SkyTeam, and uh, Saudi, which is in SkyTeam, as well as Qatar, which is in One World. So if um, if I would go online right now and look at Google Map, um, I, I'm assuming I would find Israel on the map, right? Yes, you would. And it, it not only would it be outlined, but the name of the country would appear. Okay. So um, I'm curious then, what was your take when you saw this? And uh, actually, let me hear what Paul has to say on this, because you had to present this to, to Paul at the bar. And so, <laughs> well, with Paul, it was at the Quentin Tarantino movie. But, <laughs> the same point. The, the same point? Is no, it, I'm, I'm saying oh. it's the oh, similar it, context. Oh, sure. Okay. So, uh, Paul, what was your take on this when you first heard it? So, when Joel described the maps after the movie, one of the things that jumped right to mind to me is a longstanding but vigorous debate among international business scholars about how multinationals expand, mm -hmm. how they create a global network of services and products in a world where very often national regulation keeps them from doing it on their own as a series of wholly owned subsidiaries. So that research has been around for 50-some years. I mean, going back to some work by uh, your former colleague, you know, Howard Perlmutter, who sure. writes around those issues. Mm -hmm. And so the interesting twist here is that airlines, especially airlines in the U.S., have only recently built out those global networks, and they've built them by align with different regional players, like Saudi, like Qatar Airways, and the like. And those areas in the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, have been the last of the regional networks to be built out. So in that context, it was a new way to think about an old question. How do multinationals go abroad? How do they set up the values and the norms for doing that business? And in that context, understanding why Israel was missing from some of those maps for airlines that are part of those big alliances to cover the globe, that becomes a really interesting question, and a question that matters not just for understanding the economics of discrimination, but international business strategy. That's the synergy, I think, between the discussion that came from Joel and me after that movie. So I've, I've got a, a, a weird take on this, which is, you know, sometimes when you see a map, when there's an area that's really, really small, they just don't have space to write the name. Is, is that part of it at all? Because Israel's a really small country. And Let me follow so, up on that. It's a great question, David, because it, it, what was the interesting thing for us was to look at those maps not the way we often did historically, which is in a seatback magazine that we look at when we're bored flying somewhere, but to look at it online. Because online means we can avoid that problem. We can scale in zoom in and see what's there in great detail. There's no excuse for not providing that information because technology doesn't provide it. Instead, we think it's a matter of choice, a matter of choice the way an airline markets itself or positions itself strategically. And it ends up, the evidence is consistent, we think, with that and rules out a number of other plausible alternative explanations for those route maps. 
and I'd love to go into it with you. But, and Joel, what, what's your take on that? Is that about the same take as well? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, so you can zoom right into these maps, and as you get smaller and smaller or larger and larger, you can see the names of everything that one wants you to see. I did, ex- a- I did exactly that before the show. I zoomed right in and thought, well, okay, it's not appearing. So just yeah. exactly what you're saying, Joel. I mean, there's, there, I guess there are a couple of different you know, things to say here. I mean, in some sense, it's not terribly surprising to me. I'm not that naive. It's not, not that surprising that uh, they say Saudi wouldn't have Israel on the map. I think what's surprising, kind of as a brute fact, is that Google's logo is on that map. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also surpri- more surprising to me that uh, SkyTeam uh, allows this to happen inside of SkyTeam than, than it is surprising, say, that Middle East Airways doesn't want to put Israel on there. What's SkyTeam? Well, SkyTeam is the is the alliance of airlines uh, that uh, includes Delta, Air France, uh, KLM, and a whole bunch of other players. But the point is, there's some uh, major Western players, uh, Delta particularly, who is substantially in control of this enterprise and allows this to happen inside of it. So, if I go on Delta and look at their map, what will I see? Delta's map is a standard Google map that has every country of the world, as is KLM's. Um, there are, uh, yeah, they're not engaged in this, nor, for example, nor is the SkyTeam general map. It's just that these particular SkyTeam members, Middle East Airways and uh, Saudi, where you see the absence of Israel. So uh, let me remind our audience that we're currently speaking with Paul Valor and Joel Waldfogel. They are both professors at the University of Minnesota, and they've both been working together on this paper that talks about discrimination by the airlines specifically targeted towards Israel. And I'm going to raise the question of um, why am I talking to you on a marketing program? This is a marketing program, and part of the reason is when I read your paper, you've couched a lot of this in terms of um, differentiation and, and discrimination. And we often think about those as some aspect of marketing, um, how is it that you sort of relate this, or do you relate this to marketing? And and, and let me let me direct that to Paul. <laughs> so it's an interesting question to ask, David, because one alternative explanation for this is that many of the airlines that have the map that omits Israel did not uh, omits it uniquely or omits it with a few others in some cases. Another interpretation of that is it's merely politics. These are airlines that are often state-owned by countries that don't recognize Israel, might be part of the Arab boycott of Israel, and therefore they're just mirroring what is policy at home. And that's a fair alternative interpretation. Here's why we think that's not right. Instead, we think that it is a product of a concept we call discriminatory product differentiation. They're differentiating, designing the product to be attractive to a group of customers, in part by playing on the preferences of those, those, those customers, maybe the discriminatory preferences. They, they know that this will offend others. So why do we think that's the case? We think that's the case because there's more variation in the map design of those Middle Eastern airlines than you would expect if all of them were doing it for just boycott purposes. There are some state-owned airlines, like Saudi, that omit only Israel. But there are others, David, like Royal Air Morocco, which is part of a state owned by Morocco, part of the boycott, which doesn't uniquely omit Israel. It omits all country names. It's what we call in Israel avoider. It still is able to not recognize Israel, but it doesn't single them out. 
There are even airlines in the Middle East that include Israel on the map. So there are airlines that embrace, that avoid, and that deny Israel. And, and that variation is contrary to this kind of political economy story. Instead, what we know is going on is that the likely customers of these airlines come from different parts of the world, starting with the home countries, where there are higher rates of preferences against traveling with Israelis or Jews. I'm going to think of it as an anti-Semitism rate. There are differences in the owner's tastes of those airlines. They're state-owned and they don't recognize Israel. These two preferences, one's a taste-based on the owner, the other based on the customer preferences, these tend to explain that more subtle variation in route map treatment as opposed to the brute force political economy story. So we think it is a marketing story or a strategic positioning story for those individual airlines. That's why we think it's about marketing. Is that uh, smart marketing, Joel? It, it, I mean, some of the question is, you know, if I've got customers that have a preference, that what I should do is cater to that preference. And maybe it does, it's good business to cater to that particular preference. So is that just being smart? Well, I, I don't know whether I want to use the word smart, but I would make a distinction between catering to preferences. So we'd certainly see clear evidence that there's catering to preferences here in the sense that an airline is much more likely to omit or obfuscate Israel if the airline draws on, on customers who are from countries that the ADL says, the, the Anti-Defamation League, have high rates of anti-Semitism. So that seems like uh, catering to the preferences of the likely customers. But what's interesting is that in addition to that, over and above what the customers want, we see additional evidence that the airline seems to ex, uh, express its own preferences as well as we can measure them. That is to say, if the airline is state-owned in a country that doesn't recognize Israel, then over and above what the customers' preferences seem to have induced the airline to do, there's an, a heightened tendency to, uh, to, to avoid or, or, or deny Israel's existence on the map. Now, to the question of whether it's smart, Again, maybe that's too strong a word, but you know, one part of this is just catering to preferences, which might be good for profits, at least in the short run. But there seems to be even more expression of this that goes beyond what the customers want. So, so Paul, I think that you're absolutely right that there's these two, you know, not op uh, opposing forces, but you know, kind of two complementary forces of you know, of, of mitigating or, or, or you know, making sure you're uh, marketing to your customers. Well, it's also at the same time. You as a CEO, as a shareholder, you know you have some expression or you have some identity, and you want to utilize the corporate entity to um, uh, uh, to play that out. But don't we see this all the time? I mean, I guess what I'm kind of curious about is we actually encourage companies from a marketing perspective. I mean, if you take some of the recent literature in political marketing to take political stands. Now we hope. That maybe these political stands are not anti, you know, anti-Semitic, potentially anti-racist. But you look at you look at Nike, you look at uh, you know Chick-fil-A. There's a lot of these companies taking real-life political stands, whether we like them or not. And so, do you view this similar to how those companies are doing it, whether it's in the states or across the world, or is this even something different? It's an interesting question, Sunil, because you're right. In the research on say political marketing, on values-based marketing, we ask corporations to be something more than just profit-making machines. They have values, and they compete on those values. What we think, and I guess maybe what we hope, if we can be prescriptive, is that those values represent some consensus, something that in the field of business ethics we'll call hyper-norms. And those hyper-norms 
in a global industry like the airlines probably include treating people, uh, even if they're of different backgrounds, equally and with respect. What's interesting here is that the treatment, at least insofar as those route maps indicate treatments and other indications of the product design indicate treatment, they suggest that there's variation in that, that there's a deviation from the hypernorm. Mm-hmm. So back to your story about Nike, we want them to live up to the best standards, uh, to kind of set standards for others in the shoe and footwear industry. We'd like the same out of SkyTeam, which is that alliance led by Delta and KLM. And indeed, the maps and other product design indicia at those two airlines indicate just that. And yet, the alliance includes important members who deviate from that. So I guess what it says is that when the shareholder has preferences, in this case a state shareholder at Saudi or MEA, when they have preferences that differ from the hypernorms, they can express them if they're clear, if they're persistent. And they can, I guess you'd say, for want of a better description, they can get away with it. They can do that within a broader alliance network has hypernorms that are quite mm-hmm, different. Mm-hmm. And that is what is interesting for Joel and for me, not just as a research matter, but as a related practice and policy matter. It means there's an interesting conversation to have with companies like Delta or KLM or, in one world, American and British Airways. Why do you put up with that? I think that's a really interesting question, consistent with your comments, Neil. So these hypernorms are, are hypernorms in the U.S., but they're not necessarily global hypernorms. Um, I haven't used the expression before, hypernorms, but I am uh, following up on what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so would we expect these companies that are outside the U.S. to necessarily be ad- adopting the hypernorms of the U.S.? It's an interesting question, David. Again, it's the last thing we want to do is start being cultural imperialists. Right? right. There's only one way to do it, and it's ours. And yet, I think most of us would think that there are certain ways of doing business which are not just consistent as a matter of observation around the world, but they're, to some extent, they're, they're hortatory. They're what we should uh, promote, rule of law, uh, adhering to agreements, um, fair dealings, not taking excessive advantage of other individuals. We could think of these as norms and ways of doing business that, however they're translated, however they're expressed, there's a consensus around them, and that's what we mean by hypernorms. And I guess the claim would be that at least with regard to industries like the airline industry, and remember, this is an industry that has well-established industry-wide norms through industry-wide associations that to some extent is also reinforced by a series of bilateral agreements between countries that open up their skies partially or fully, that those norms of doing business, including the norms of treating individuals of different backgrounds, equally, or at least not in a discriminatory matter based on those backgrounds, that that probably is a consensus view. And it's interesting to see that there are players in these alliances that can persistently, and I think substantially, deviate from that, at least in these product designs, and get away with it, be part of those norms. And it's an interesting question, why the big leaders of those alliances, Delta, American, United, why they... Um, accommodate that. I think right. that's the interesting question. No, I, I think that's absolutely right, Paul, where there's this umbrella brand, so to say, and this, you know, there's different identities within this umbrella brand, and you know, how, why are some of the big, the big brands in this umbrella brands dealing uh, or allowing this to happen? So, so I, I have a question that maybe pushes this even one step further, and, and Joel, I think you might be able to, uh, you know, opine on this a little bit. I know that you, uh, you know, scholar of law and economics, and so I'm trying to think about, and even you know, when I kind of think about these issues, 
is what's the right uh, intervention here? You know, you're talking about hypernorms. We talk about this stuff in ethics. Well, we also have a powerful mechanism, the law, right, that does to some degree, even in the airline industry, prevent sorts of discrimination. And so I guess and maybe, Joel, you can speak to this and Paul as well, of course, but do you view, uh, uh, you know, from a law and economics perspective, do you view this as a, you know, an interventionary problem? Or do you view this as, you know what, this is the market playing itself out, so let's stay out of this? Or is this, you know, the law needs to come in and create the right incentives, you know, for these the, these airline companies to yeah. not be discriminatory? Well, that's a very that's a very fun question in a lot of ways. So one view about this is that it, is that competition might just cause this to go away. You know, a traditional Beccarian view that if there's just competition, then if there's something that's objectionable, that somebody will, and people don't like it, it will be competed out of existence. I think here that's not likely to happen because the, the airlines that are engaged in this, there really aren't good alternatives to these airlines in the sense that are, there aren't large airlines with lots of new equipment sure. uh, that, are, that stand as substitutes, say, for Saudia. And I don't think uh, I don't think that the uh, the Saudi uh, uh, management are necessarily very embarrassed about this. I think this is an expression, just as Chick Fil A being closed on Sunday might be a positive expression for sure. local customers. Sure, sure. But I do think that there's a court of public opinion argument to be made about Google. It's not just that Google makes its map software mm-hmm. available; it's that their brand name, their brand logo, is on these adulterated maps. And I think that that's a, a curious decision. Uh, you know, I, I love the scene decision in the decision by Strange decision World. by Google or decision. Well, I mean, this this sort of has happened outside of of their behavior, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, I guess their 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 logo is passively on that map, but they are making a decision to allow their logo logo to appear on maps that have been adulterated in in various ways. Sure, sure. And so I think there's a, a sense in which uh, Google is allowing itself to appear to be complicit, and you know, I, I it's. I love the scene in Dr. Strangelove where, you know, uh, you have to, you're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. I think here answering to Google might be the, the best choice. Uh, if Google were to say, okay, fine, you can do this, but our logo isn't going to be on it, that would be a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I know Paul, who's a lawyer and has thought about this more deeply, I think has some thoughts about legal redress, but I, I think even marketing redress or market redress sure. is possible, more so with the American or Western players than with the others. Uh, let me remind our audience, you're listening to Measured Thoughts with uh, our two guests that we have uh, today, which are Paul Valor and Joel Waldvogel, uh, who are both professors at the University of Minnesota. And we're talking about one of their pieces of research that's looked at discrimination by some of the airlines in terms of representation of Israel on their maps. And um, and I'm real curious as we think about this, there are these um, as I understand it, you're not concerned and worried about uh, Saudi or, or Emirates or any of the Middle Eastern airlines not showing Israel. You're concerned about the Western companies that have been uh, passive or at least accepting mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. this. And so while I mentioned the U.S. norms or Western norms, you're saying, well, the Western companies are the ones that need to be more proactive about that. Is that, is that right, Paul? Yeah, I think that's right, David. There are two things. One is to ask these questions about how the decisions of these regional players and these global alliances, how they matter for the way U.S. companies that lead them, how they behave, and what are their hyper-norms. They may themselves have norms that are completely the opposite of this, completely non-discriminatory. An example of that would be Delta, when in 2011 they announced that they were adding Saudia 
and MEA, which is a state-owned airline in Lebanon, to the Sky Team Alliance. This led to a firestorm of criticism from religious groups, some Jewish, some evangelical Christian, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. After all, uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't allow the importation of, say, religious artifacts that are not uh, Islamic in, in background. The response from Delta then was, hey, look, we don't discriminate, and they have a right to control their borders, but in any case, don't worry. The nature of this alliance will be the most attenuated you can think of. It'll just be what they call an interline booking agreement. So, David, you can pick up your, your, your drop off your suitcases in Riyadh and pick them up in Philadelphia without having to transfer them in, in London. Well, of course, seven years later, it's much more than that. They, Saudi and MEA are completely in bed with Delta with co-sharing and sharing of, uh, of uh, travel perks, miles, and lounges, just about everything you can think of between two Western alliances. So they're very much tied up. And if that's the case, then to some extent, Delta's accommodating this at first, maybe because of necessity, but they've learned to get a taste for this. And it, maybe that's something we should ask of Delta. That is, whether they can do little things that preserve the commercial advantages without some of these other aggravating, I'll call them moral concerns or norms concerns. So for example, a really simple thing that Delta could ask of uh, Saudi or MEA is to go from a map that only omits Israel to one that many other international players have, both from the Middle East and not, a so-called um, omitter map, a voider map, where no countries are listed whatsoever, including Israel. That way they could preserve this fiction of non-recognition, but not single them out. The fact that that hasn't happened has meant that Delta hasn't been very interested in that issue. Uh, I think it also is a function of how this is not just politics, David. This is about marketing. Saudi is trying within its orbit and ambit to attract more customers, and they think they can, net of other things, with this more um, denier, this singling out map. But that's the challenge for Delta, and I think we should hold Delta account for that. It's an easy thing for them to do if they decide it's important, and it's one that they're in a position as a leader of that alliance to do. So I think that's important. Let me just mention one other thing. The law can matter here. We have laws in the books at the federal level. We have federal anti-boycott laws that go back to the 70s, mm -hmm. which are designed to keep companies from accommodating players that contribute to uh, the reduction of commercial relations with Israel, the boycott. And it strikes me that this kind of alliance, which I think it's safe to say doesn't increase commercial relations with Israel, is probably one that will run afoul of the anti-boycott statute. It's waiting for an industrious litigator to step in with standing. <laughs> More recently, most recently, the last few years, states have been passing laws. States like Minnesota, most recently, last summer, and or South Carolina and others, where they prohibit, again, actions by companies that reduce commercial relations with Israel. And the sanction there is either uh, avoiding them for investments of their state pension funds or avoiding them as suppliers to the states. These have not been challenged yet. I think they will be. These are two sources of where the law might provide additional leverage to get companies like Delta to change their behavior. So let me broaden this then and think about, um, you know, these hyper norms that you've referred to. When I think of them within the, within the Western culture, particularly within the United States and those which we have laws about that you were just referring to, Paul, we have you can't discriminate based on gender. You can't discriminate based on age and you can't d discriminate based on, on race and religion. Um, so help me understand ladies' night, where ladies get in for free, or senior citizen discounts, or kids get in free. Um, 
those are all sort of discrimination in the other direction, at least. But do those, I'm trying to figure out where that fits in all of this, because that's discrimination, it's, and it's price discrimination that is given to particular groups. Right. It's a good question. Of course, Joel has written on some of these issues where the discrimination that occurs is unintentional. It's a kind of benign side effect of trying to focus your product in a particular group. Here, two things are important, and you've already mentioned one. One is that the object of the discrimination is an individual or a group of individuals from a protected group. Children aren't necessarily a protected class under U.S. national law or other international protections. Um, individuals based on race, religion, national origin tend to be. And, of course, our civil rights uh, regime is all about, has its origins in, in race and in national uh, and ethnic background and religion. And this falls squarely into that, especially on the religious side. The second thing is about intent. And intent is often hard to divine from the evidence. We have to kind of rule out alternatives, like ruling out the boycott motivation for this rather than a marketing motivation for it. But I think here we can rule out many of the reasonable alternatives and divine some intent, in this case, to design the product to attract to a group, in part because they know it's offensive to another group. That goes beyond Joel's work on the benign side effects of sometimes apparent planning, but not really with the intent. Does that make sense at your end, Joel, with your research? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, there are a couple of questions. One is whether the product differentiation merely serves to, to, to make more money or to, see, to seek to make more money, or whether it goes beyond that. And, you know, so there are forms of product differentiation that some might even find subtly objectionable, but that are just purely designed to make money. So hey, let me give you a, an example. Suppose I'm a hospital, and I decide to locate away from poor people. Now, that's not as visibly obvious as omitting a particular country from a map, um, and it also may seek just to make money. It may not be done out of dislike for poor people. But here it looks like we have evidence of more than just doing the thing that would make money, but going beyond that and doing the thing that expresses the preferences of the owners. Yep. Now, I, I hear that, and I hear it very clearly. I've got to tell you guys, I find this work just fascinating. It's a, it's a, you know, obviously a very intriguing question trying to think about, you know, this discrimination that's going on. It's sort of subtle. It's not very obvious to, mm -hmm. to many of us. As I said, I uh, in my introduction, I just got done flying Emirates Air. I didn't look on the map. I had no idea that Israel wasn't there. And if I had seen that, I ne wouldn't have necessarily thought about it even. And, um, you know, that's particularly intriguing. I'd love to pursue this more. I encourage people to, uh, to read your work. I find it fascinating. I've enjoyed reading it. And thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to need to take a short break, so please do stay with us. So, uh, Paul, Joel, thank you very much. I appreciate it. When we get back, we're going to take calls on anything related to marketing, branding, and metrics, and any of your thoughts about the interviews that we just had with, uh, with Joel and Paul on this. If you want to join our conversation when we come back, you can call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. This is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132.